We tend to regulate things about electrical safety and fire safety, but not about cyber safety. Why are we liars? We never read the terms and agreements. And we actually tested this. We set up a Wi-Fi in downtown London where we had a free Wi-Fi hotspot. All you had to do was to accept our terms and agreements. And those terms <laughs> and agreements included that your firstborn will be taken away by our company. And everybody accepted it. Did you take people up on that? They told me no. So we didn't pick up any kids, even though we had the right to. Hey everyone, it's David Bombal back with a very special guest. He's the author of this book, If It's Smart, It's Vulnerable. Really interested to get his thoughts because he's been in the industry for a lot longer than most of us. Miko, welcome. Thank you and thank you for having me. Yeah, it's brilliant to have you on a YouTube video. I know you've done uh, multiple TED Talks, you've been at Black Hat, you've been at DEF CON, you've done many, many talks. So thanks so much for, you know, for taking the time to talk to us on YouTube. And that gets us to the book. You've got to tell us sort of like the history of how this came about because I believe that's actually going to do with one of your TED Talks. That's right. I've been contemplating a book for, I don't know, 20 years because I wanted to write a book about how to analyze malware or how to handle nation state threats and all kinds of different topics. But when I did my first TED Talk in 2011, then I actually really started to think about it for real because multiple publishers contacted me and agents contacted me right away. They all told me that, you know, Mikko, all TED speakers write a book. Mikko, you should write a book. So I tried. I tried my best. But with the amount of traveling I do for my day job, it wasn't just going anywhere. So it did, really did require the pandemic because then I had no excuses. I had nothing else to do. So then I actually did sit down and start writing the book for real. And at that time, the topic sort of changed because I was initially writing a very technical book, maybe a book about cyber war and, and nation state and offensive use of cyber power and, and malware analysis. But my publishers told me that, no, 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 Mikko, you should, you should write a book about the things you've learned over the last 30 years, about how did we end up where we are today? Where are we going to go next? And you should tell your stories. And that's what the book really is about. It's, it's about the big change around us. It's about how the internet is the best thing and the worst thing which is happening during our time. And then it's filled with stories and anecdotes of things I've done over the last 30 years. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because, and I'm glad you're sharing, because I think for a lot of people who are new to the industry, it, it's great to get sort of the wisdom from people who have walked the road. And I really wanna thank you for sharing that with us. I mean, I've heard you say, and you talk about this in your book as well, that we're in a revolution and that you've mentioned it now, you know, great benefits and great risks. And I'm assuming based on this title, it's got something to do with IoT as one of one of the facets, is that right? That's right, that's right. The title is is the Hüppenen Law. I initially blurted it out during some keynote talk somewhere while talking about connected devices. And you know, when everything becomes smart, everything gets connected. If it's smart, it's vulnerable and it just stuck and eventually it became the Hüppenen Law. So yeah, one of the risks, one of the biggest things shaping our, our risk scenarios right now is the fact that everything is becoming a computer. I've been a computer security guy all my life, and I, I used to think that my job is to secure computers. I'm a computer security guy, I secure computers. But now that everything is going online, it is becoming very clear that the job of us computer security guys is not to secure computers, it's to secure the whole society because our societies run on computers. Everything runs on computers. I mean, I, I've you used the example in the book and I've heard you say this in other talks as well. I think you use your watch. Are you wearing your famous watch? I am right in, my Omega. Yes. How old is that watch? This watch is now 21 years old because I got it as the 10th year anniversary gift from the company I work for. And I worked with this company for 31 years now. And it, it is a great example because this is completely mechanical. There's no code on this watch. There's no CPUs. There's no RAM. There's no connectivity. There's no storage. There's no nothing, which means it's unhackable. There's nothing you can do to hack this watch. And then when you look at modern watches with, with connectivity, they might be very secure. For example, Apple Watch is actually surprisingly secure. They've really put a lot of effort to make it hard to hack. But is it unhackable? Well, of course it's not. It is running code, code written by humans, and humans make mistakes. And when coders make mistakes, you end up with vulnerabilities, which means, at least in theory, everything is, is hackable. So when we turn traditional things into smart things by adding functionality and connectivity, connectivity, we're also adding vulnerability. You know, I mean, that, I think there's two facets to that. You are both a cybersecurity expert, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're also a, a privacy expert. And there's like two parts of that, isn't there? You've got the security risks as well as the privacy risks of, of these IoT devices, right? Yep. That's one of the reasons why this IoT problem is bigger than many people think. 
right now, people, when they think about connected devices, they think about the smart things that they buy themselves in their homes where they know that these things are online. In, in fact, in many cases, the reason why they buy new devices is to get the added functionality. It's nice to have an, you know, a smart TV so you can watch Netflix on your TV. It's, it's nice to have a smart security camera so you can watch your cameras from your phone. Some people buy smart fridges so they don't have to remember what's in the fridge because there's a camera inside the fridge, which is handy. I, I, I give that. However, the future I see is not as much about smart devices being online. It's also about dumb devices being online. And here I mean the, the kind of devices that we, the consumers, don't need to be online. Um, a kitchen mixer is a great example because, you know, when you beat your eggs with a kitchen mixer, you, you'll never need an app for that mixer. You don't want, you don't need it to be online. What I'm saying is that even th devices like that will be online, but they're going online for a different reason. The reason why your fridge goes online is that you get benefits, you get an app. The reason why your kitchen mixer goes online is that the vendor who builds the mixer wants to know where you are so they can target their marketing better. They want to know what kind of problems do they have with their devices. Data is money. And these manufacturers of these devices would like to collect the data. And when it's cheap enough to do it, they will do it. And this isn't very obvious because it isn't happening yet. It's, it's happening in the near future. And the reason why it's not happening yet is that it's still a little bit too expensive to add IoT chips into every single device. But in five years, it's not going to be too expensive. And then we will see everything you buy going online. Everything you will buy for your home will be online and you don't even know that they're online. That's really scary. I mean, I think in the book you mentioned... Uh... 5G or 6G maybe in the future is the way the devices will connect. So it won't even be on your Wi-Fi. They'll just simply connect and you won't even know it. That's right. Many people respond to this theory of dumb devices being online that they simply won't let them go online, which is not what they can... I mean, they can't prevent them going online. They're not going to use anything you own to go online. You don't need to give them access to your Wi-Fi. They will use Zigbee or, or uh, Zigfox or 6G, which is coming up. There won't be any way for you to block them from going online except to wrap them in tinfoil. And if you wrap your kitchen mixer in tinfoil, you won't be able to mix anything with it. And then, of course, the next question that people ask me around this, okay, what are they going to do? Like if, if they hack my fridge or my kitchen mixer or whatever, what's the risk? And, and there, it is a little bit hard to, to, to turn it into concrete problems for the end users because right now, most of these things get hacked not to break into your home or into your devices in your house, but to simply make these devices part of a botnet. And that botnet is then used to do something bad for someone else. I had a really eye-opening phone call about this maybe four years ago when the Mirai botnet originally was found, one of the largest and one of the first IoT botnets. Um, we were working here in our lab and, 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 and we were like fingerprinting the infected devices and, and scanning IPv4 address range to see where in the world the infected devices were. And this was pretty bad because the very first thing the Mirai botnet owners did with their botnet was a couple of large denial of service attacks, including one large attack against the root DNS servers of the internet, which then made the whole internet slower. We were eager to to figure out where the infected devices were and if there's anything we could do to make them go offline or, or to clean them. So we were fingerprinting these devices and, and one of the IP ranges was very easily identifiable. I could actually see which company had the infected device, which looked like a heat pump, a Mitsubishi heat pump, which you would use in a home or in an office to cool down or heat up the room. So I, I googled for the phone number of the office. It was a small uh, law agency. I called them up and I told them, hi, you know, I'm Mikko calling from WitSecure and uh, we believe there's an infected heat pump in your office. And they were really helpful. They're like, yeah, sure. Yeah, we actually, yeah, we have a brand new Mitsubishi heat pump. We got it last month. And I was asking them, okay, does it, does it work? And they were testing it. Yeah, it works fine. Everything works. And then I told them that, you know, according to our data, your heat pump is part of a global botnet, which is right now attacking the global root DNS servers, making the whole internet slower. And he responded to me saying, uh-huh. Well, that's kind of cool. <laughs> oh, no. And that's not really what you want to hear, is it? Like, like, they thought it was just, you know, really interesting and really cool, but they were not eager to do anything about it because the thing which they had in their office worked fine. It, it, it didn't do anything bad for them. So why should 
they do anything about it? Especially, why should they spend any money to do anything about it? And that's the great question. Like, who who really should be fixing these problems? And I think the the answer is 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 quite clear. It should be the manufacturers of these devices, not really the users who should be responsible. I've, I've heard you use this example where you talk about a washing machine. If a manufacturer's washing machine catches fire, there's like legal require uh, issues about that. Uh, they'll be fined by the government. Lots of rules about like washing machines, temperatures, whatnot. But if the Wi-Fi password gets hacked, it's like, is it in their terms and conditions? It's like, so what? I mean, that's a problem. That is a problem. We tend to regulate things about electrical safety and fire safety, but not about cyber safety. And that probably is something which is coming up. In fact, over the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of talk in the United States about uh, regulation or certification around security of IoT devices, just like we, we regulate other household items. So it probably is coming up. And I'm not really a big fan of regulation because I think regulation quite often fails. But here I, I might see that it, it might be necessary because clearly the market by itself is not going to fix this. The most important selling point for home consumer goods is price. And the vendors who invest more into building better cybersecurity for their washing machines or whatever, they get features that nobody's asking for. Nobody's asking for how secure is my washing machine? Like how, what kind of firewalls or what kind of intrusion prevention technologies do you have in your washing machine? No, they're asking questions about the price. And if you invest in security, you're going to be more expensive than your competitors. And if the markets don't work, then the way we as a society try to fix that is by regulation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's worrying. I mean, not just from, I mean, I think you've mentioned this as well. It's on Wikipedia. George Orwell was an optimist. So 1984 was an optimist book. You still believe that? You, you see things getting like really bad from a like a tracking point of view. I think you've said in your book as well that, you know, privacy is dead. Privacy is dead. That's that's quite clear. And, and I'm afraid it died during our watch. We, we the humankind, we had privacy before the internet. Like 20, 30 years ago, privacy still existed. Today, it's gone. And one of the main reasons, well, the two main reasons really, is the gorillas of the Silicon Valley, the biggest technology companies, tracking our daily lives and turning it into cash. And the other reason is mobile phones. These phones, which we carry with us everywhere where we go. We, we even sleep next to these devices. And, and these devices and these gorillas of the Silicon Valley know more about us than anyone else. We used to ask deep and troubling questions from gods or maybe the, the wise men of the tribe Today, when we have deep and troubling questions, we ask them from Google. And that's true. You know this is true. Like when you're really wondering about something or you, you have some weird thing hurting your back and you're wondering if it's something serious, before you ask anyone else, before you ask your doctor, before you ask your spouse, you ask Google. So we really volunteer the most private things about our lives to this billion-dollar behemoth in, in, in Silicon Valley. And, and of course, other companies like Facebook, they make all their money from our data. The biggest companies on the planet used to be oil companies. Today, the biggest companies on the planet are all data companies. Yeah, in your book, I think you said, what is it? Google is a confessional. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We, we, we confess our sins or actually everything we do. I work a lot with law, law enforcement and cops, and, and it's really interesting how the work of forensic digital collection or collection of digital evidence has changed. It used to be a thing that law enforcement only did during cyber crimes, like a hacker gets caught, you know, breaking into networks illegally and, 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 and his or her laptops are, are, are then searched. Today, practically any serious crime contains an element of digital forensics search, not just for location information, which of course is really useful because we carry these tracking devices on us. So if you're suspected of doing something bad in, in a certain place at a certain hour, your devices will rat you. So that's, of course, pretty obvious. But it's not only that. One of the reasons I, I spoke with a law, law enforcement specialist lately and he told me that you know murderers google for things like how do i hide the murder weapon you can actually find these from their search history and of course that's very useful when you're trying to find the right suspect so people really do confess their sins to google it's amazing that. I mean, when I listen to you speak, and I've watched quite a few of your videos, and I read the book, and it's like, wow, you know, what can we do about it? Is it like we use a watch like you have? What would you recommend? You know, do we like try and turn back time? Or do we just have to embrace it that it's, you know, I think you've used the example of electricity. Is it something that we, you know, it's, it's going to happen whether we like it or not? Or can we turn it back? And like you said, wear a tinfoil hat, go live in the woods. What can we do? Well, we can't, can't go back. We're, we're here. And there's even if we wanted to go back, we can't. Uh, it's 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 too hard. I tried living myself without Google, and I, I realized it's impossible. You can't do it anymore, or or you will have to be living outside the society. Sure, you can replace I don't know Google search.
search and Google Mail and Google Maps with competitors, but when someone mails you a YouTube link, what are you supposed to do? I mean, what are you supposed to do? You can't live without Google. That's just the reality. Even if we could go back, it's probably not going to be the right choice. Like, we don't want to live in stone ages. We want to get the benefits of this revolution around us. And the revolution brings great benefits and great risks, but I do believe that the benefits are bigger than the risks. And, and as you refer to electricity, that's, that's the example I use, because when electricity came around, which wasn't actually that long ago, 150 years ago is when electric grids were started being built in the biggest cities, that revolution changed everything for the better. You, you, you look at all the upsides we've got from electricity and electric grid, it's, it's amazing how much the world has changed, but it has also made us very, very reliant on that technology. If there would be a solar storm which would cut down electricity on the planet for a decade, we would lose a lot of people. We couldn't feed the people we have on the planet without electricity. We couldn't communicate, we couldn't move. And that's exactly the same kind of revolution that this connectivity revolution right now is. So what our great-grandfathers did in 1780, we are doing right now. They brought us into the world of electricity. We are bringing all future generations into the world of connectivity, and it will become exactly as necessary as electricity. And that is the right choice to make. I am not trying to steer us away from this revolution. I think we should embrace this revolution, just like our great-grandfathers did the right thing when they embraced electricity. But we have to understand the importance of these choices and the burden of decision that we have on our backs as we are making these decisions for all future generations. Amazing. And one of the things I, I picked up in the book is you mentioned like 65% of email is, is Gmail or something. Is that right? And it's quite, quite remarkable how that has changed as well. Um, nowadays, it's not impossible, but very hard to run your own email infrastructure, especially private email servers, which used to be the norm. Everybody used to have their own email server. Everybody used to have their own web server. I had my own web server and I had a shared email server with like five guys or five friends of mine. Nowadays, if you would try to do that, your emails probably wouldn't go anywhere because it would be weird, it would be abnormal, and it would then be categorized as spam. And this means that this open internet that we've we got is more and more turning into this closed garden, which is being run by these biggest companies on the planet. I mean, that's a problem. I mean, like you said, if you try and get, get away from Google, it's almost impossible. How do you get away from Amazon, Google, Facebook, all the big companies? And that gets me to Facebook. I think you mentioned in your book, it's too expensive to have a Facebook account. Is that right? That's right. I'm not on Facebook, so I can't afford it. Why is that? Well, it, it's interesting. When the web came around, and I remember this because I set up the first website for our company in 1994. At the time, there were like a handful of websites in the whole world. I remember when, when the web started to become a thing and, and I, I saw it. And, you know, I mean, I, I realized that, you know, this is going to be huge. Like, this is so easy to use because we had internet before that, but it was really hard to use. You had services like Gopher, text-based browsing, and now you had like images and links and anybody could use this. Like, my grandma could use this. We were talking about that here at the office and how this is going to change the world and how there's going to be all kinds of sites and services. I know, news and weather, maybe even movies one day, maybe even something like YouTube one day, who knows? But then one of the persons in the discussion made a really good point, which was that why would the newspapers or TV channels bring their content to this web if they're not going to get paid for it. So how would they get paid for publishing this thing? If they sell a newspaper on paper, they get money for it. Why would they bring it to the web? And at the time, in 1994, we had no idea. We really had no idea. So the best we could guess was that there's going to be some kind of a payment mechanism in the browsers. There's going to be a payment button. I want to read this article. So you click a button and you send a micropayment of, I don't know, half a cent so you get the right to read the article. That's how we thought it's going to work out. And now, 25 years later, we still don't have that button in our browsers. And instead, we ended up with this completely different payment mechanism, which is tracking the users and, and then selling access to the users through advertisers, profiling the whole world. The history could have taken a completely different turn, but it didn't. And the end result is that privacy is now dead. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I mean, we've basically sold our personal data, which used to be so confidential to get free 
services. And I mean, companies like newspapers try and put up paywalls, but it doesn't seem to work. People, like you said to that example of the um, the company not who didn't care about their IoT device being part of a botnet, people just don't seem to want to spend the money or don't realize the risks of what's happening. I don't want to talk too much about um, privacy. I want to get into like, you know, the advice for people. But I want to mention this. I saw a talk that you did where you were talking about the NSA quite a few years ago and how they were farming data. And I really liked what you said. You said you are a foreigner. Is that right? That's right. Well, I'm a Finn. I live in Helsinki, Finland. I've lived here all my life. As I talk about the, the operations done by the most powerful countries on the planet and the biggest intelligence agencies in the world who do have access to massive amounts of data, a very typical reaction I get is that, you know, yeah, yeah, sure, go ahead and worry about China and, and Russia, but, you know, NSA is okay. NSA is fine. NSA, is, they follow laws and regulations and, and they're not going to, you know, break these rules. And that's that's true. They, it's, it's unlikely they're going to break their local laws, but they're American agency. And the American laws, the U.S. laws, give no rights to me because I'm a foreigner. They have all the rights in the world to track whatever I'm doing online. The, the, the laws they follow give that right to them. So when I speak about these topics, it's coming from a completely different point of view than when my colleagues from USA speak about what the NSA is doing. I'm a foreigner. I'm one of the targets of this kind of information gathering. Because in your book uh, on page 229 that I've got opened up here, it says, my boy boycott of RSA. Can you explain why you boycotted RSA in that year? And, you know, sort of the effects of what happened and why it's a problem and, and you know, has things change for the better or worse? Yep. In 2014, we learned about a weak encryption algorithm which RSA had used on purpose in their products, which they had put into their security products because of NSA, the National Security Agency of the United States, has requested and actually paid for them to implement this algorithm. Wow. Years later, we learned that the reason why they wanted RSA to use this specific algorithm was that they could break it so they could spy on foreigners. Well, people like me. I learned about this just as I was reading my talk, which was titled Government as Malware Authors to be delivered at the RSA Security Conference. And I remember this was Christmas Eve's Eve. And I was like sitting around my desk saying, what the hell am I doing? Like, why would I go to this conference to deliver a talk after I've just learned what they're doing? So I wrote a public letter to the presidents of RSA and EMC, who at the time owned RSA, saying that I will, I'm withdrawing my support from the conference. And I've been boycotting the conference ever since. It's the biggest conference in our field, but I, I haven't gone there since. Although I think I'm about to stop the boycott. You, you know, the company has been sold twice since that time. So it's completely different people running the conference nowadays. But I do feel strongly about things which directly affect me and my own security and my own privacy. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. So just one of the things you mentioned in the book is that uh, Juniper had this on their net screen firewall. So people are buying these commercial products using this security that, you know, it's supposed to be secure, but it, it wasn't really. Yep, security which has been artificially weakened on purpose. Like these are not bugs. They actually made weaker products on purpose. Now, we don't know exactly what the NSA was aiming to do with these things. I'm confident they weren't aiming to look at me in particular. Of course, they were aiming to look at some bad people somewhere. Who knows? But the whole idea where security companies weaken their products on purpose is not the kind of thing I want to support. I mean, and that's a problem. I mean, if the system is broken, and I mean, that I've heard this question asked before, and let me ask it, quantum computing might result in the whole internet infrastructure that we use being obliterated overnight, because is it, it kind of like quantum computing, if the NSA has that, could um, decrypt all kinds of encryptions on WhatsApp or whatever applications we're using, right? I think that the thing to think about around that is, I don't believe anybody, including NSA, has the kind of capability today. But they will have it one day, which means they can be collecting data today, encrypted data, which they can't decrypt today. But maybe in 10 years, 20 years, they can. And there might be something that they can use in history to twist people's arms. You know, someone who's not important today, but becomes the prime minister in 20 years, they have his or hers history, which they might be able to decrypt in the future as quantum computing gets better. And that's a bit worrying. What this all means is that we who built these systems, we should very aggressively be steering away from quantum weak algorithms today to, to go to quantum safe encryption algorithms, which already exist. Once again, Bitcoin blockchain is an example of that. If you use a new address for every Bitcoin transaction, it's quantum safe. So we have this technology. It has been invented already. The challenge is that we have to 
change everything. Every single web browser, every single web server, every single mobile app is right now using these old algorithms. And you can just imagine how much of a work it will be to change all of it. But that's exactly what we have to do. But I think that's a really big warning. Don't post anything online that you don't want the NSA or someone to find out about. Because no, that's an easy advice, which is impossible to follow. Yes, <laughs> yeah, very difficult. <laughs> exactly right. Um, but be very careful what you post online. I'm amazed what people post on Facebook or other places. It, it's un, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, it's a problem. I mean, it's uh, you've got the Googles of the world and the Facebooks of the world tracking you, but you've also got government agencies. And I mean, you've mentioned your book. You cover a lot of topics, and I just want to emphasize that IoT is just one of the topics. You cover a whole range of topics. Um, and the problem is like cyber war is becoming a big thing um, more and more in recent years, especially with what's happening in this year. But before we get there, I want to talk about like how do how can people who are interested in cyber or are interested in getting to this field? What advice can you give them? And let's start off with this. You talk about Tetris, security Tetris. Can you explain that? And, and then let's let's perhaps talk about, you know, advice from all your years for young people or people who want to break into the field. Yep. Cybersecurity Tetris. Um, it's actually a positive idea. Uh, it's it's so easy to get dragged down into how bad everything is when we work in this industry and, 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 and we only work with the data breaches and data leaks and yet another company is hacked. We often forget all the success stories. And it's especially true with the mainstream media. They only write about bad news, not just in cyber, but in general, only bad news are news. Good news are not news. If something doesn't happen, that's not news. When a company doesn't get hacked, that's not news. So the reality is that security has never been better than today. Uh, and I know it sounds a bit weird, but it actually is true. You look at the security of the operating systems we run on our computers and compare to where they were five years ago, 10 years ago, you look at the security of, of mobile devices and they're excellent compared to where we used to be. So the situation is, is great. But since the headlines only emphasize the failures, we think it's worse than it's ever been. So in the game of Tetris, what you're trying to do is to make a whole line. Actually, you're really trying to make four whole lines at the time. That's the Tetris. When you close four lines in one row or in, in one go, that's a Tetris. That's what, we, what we're trying to do. And what do you do? What, what happens when you succeed? Well, the line or the lines disappear. So your successes disappear while your failures pile up. That's what happens in the game of Tetris. That's what's happening in cybersecurity. When we succeed, when we are able to secure our systems, when in a company the IT team works through the weekend to patch every single machine just in time before someone tries to scan the IP range Monday morning, that only means that nothing happened. No one's going to know. And rarely is anyone thanked for stopping a disaster which didn't happen. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that. I mean, it's like the wins are not rewarded. It's all the failures that make the news. That's, that's right. And it's important to emphasize the successes because there's much more successes than failures. And the situation is better than it's ever been. Granted, the attackers are also more powerful than they've ever been. Because we've mostly here spoken about privacy issues, which is the big companies, which are not breaking any laws when they do it. And then governments doing the cyber war or espionage, which is also not really probably illegal. It's not illegal when governments do it. We have to remember that the most common problem people run into is online crime done by big crime groups. And, and they do break the law and, and they break the law to make money. And money is a pretty good motivator. Remind us, how long have you been doing this for? Well, I carry a floppy with me at all times to remind me of where I started from. And those in the audience who haven't worked with floppies, this is the USB thumb drive of the 1990s. This here is a single-sided, no, it's actually two-sided HD floppy. So it's 720 kilos, less than a megabyte um, on this floppy. This is from 1992 or 1993. This seems to contain the form.a virus. And that's where I started my security career. I was a programmer writing games in the 1980s when I was a teenager. I have published commercial games for Commodore 64 in 1987 or so. But I started doing security when I joined this company. When I joined this company, that was summer of 1991. So I've been doing this forever. And just to put things into perspective, I'm born in the 1960s. I'm actually older than ARPANET, which is the predecessor for the internet. So whenever you think about how old is the internet, this is how old the internet is. <laughs> You've got it before we before we get into the advising. You've got to tell us a story about the Saab. Oh yeah, I uh, I uh, remember my first big gig with this company. 
because initially I was just a database developer. I wasn't doing malware research when I joined. And I was doing a database project for a big client with a factory on the other side of Helsinki. And the project sucked. It was late and had too few resources and we didn't know the tools. It wasn't really going the way we were hoping for and the client wasn't very happy either. So I was in touch with the CIO all the time and he, he wanted to get an update. So I agreed to have a meeting. I'll come over, I'll, I'll do a demo of the product which is using this database I built. So I do an overnighter, I finish the project to a demo state at our office, then I pack my stuff into my briefcase, I hop onto the tram, I do the tram ride across Helsinki, I get into the meeting room, there's the CIO, there's his team, I open up my briefcase to realize that I have forgotten my floppy. <laughs> the floppy that had the database on it was still inside my computer at the office. An honest mistake. But he wasn't believing me. He, he was certain that I was bluffing. That, you know, the project is nowhere. I don't have a demo. I'm just trying to buy time. And you're 21, so you're not believable. Exactly. I, that wasn't very convincing. But I, I actually did have a demo. It's just, honestly, I forgot it in the drive. So he insisted that they will wait in the meeting room while I go and get the floppy and do the demo. And I told him, sure, I'll do it. But it's going to take a while because I have to take the tram ride across Helsinki. It's going to take an hour and a half. And so he gave me his car keys. Okay, you take my car, go get the floppy, we'll wait. I go down, there's this brand new Saab 9000 Turbo, nice car. I'm 19 years old, oh, 20 years old, I'm nervous. I get on the streets of Helsinki and I crash his car. And did you get fired? No, company forgave me and that's maybe one of the reasons why I still work here today. It's the same company 31 years ago. So let, let's talk about that because you have seen many, many changes. And I think one of the amazing things about that story is you found a great company and they didn't like throw you under the bus when you made a mistake <laughs> crashing the customer's car. So what advice would you give yourself if you were 21 today? Like go back in time with all your knowledge and experience about the industry today. But let's say you were starting at 21 today. What would you advise yourself to do? Like if someone's interested in getting into cyber, you know, what, what advice would you give them based on all this experience? Well, the number one thing is to keep teaching yourself, keep learning, keep your eyes open, look at the new trends. When you see something interesting, if it interests you, go all in, figure out what it is, try to become an expert in this field. If it's a new field and you're an expert in that field, you're going to do well for yourself. Another guidance that I've given to many people and I've gotten good feedback on it is find your niche and then become the best in the world in that niche or one of the best in the world in that niche. And it doesn't matter how narrow the niche is. If you have a really narrow field of expertise, you, it's doable to become a world-class expert in that niche. And even though the niche might be small, it's a big world. Someone is always going to want to hire one of the best in the world in that niche, regardless of how narrow the niche is. And when I mean narrow niche, it could be something like configuring the policies for Exchange 365 in a certain configuration. No, something which is sellable, but narrow and where you can become one of the best. Now, of course, it has to be something you enjoy doing. Otherwise, it sucks if you have to become the best in the world in something you're not interested in. But keep learning. Keep looking at how the world is changing because right now the world is changing faster than ever before. I mean, that's a problem. When you start out, it's overwhelming because there's so much to learn, it seems. How do you, after all this time, manage to still keep on learning? Well, you mentioned burnout and that's that's the, the, the danger we have, especially in this field where you can spend unlimited amount of time going down the rabbit hole. You have to close the hole regularly. You have to know when to stop. You have to know when to take a break. And this is very personal. Uh, it, it's hard to give advice to other people on, on, on where to draw the lines, but no one's irreplaceable and, and no one should spend all of their time doing just one thing. Have a hobby is maybe the, 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 the uh, advice I have here. Because if you have a hobby you love, that's naturally going to take some of your time and that will re relieve the stress. If you are able to really sleep well and relieve your stress well enough, then you can go all in during your productive hours as much as you want and become the best you that you can become. I think that's great advice. I mean, it's um, this will this will just consume your life. You've got to have some balance. Try and find something that can distract you. Sorry, go on. What's what's your hobby? Yeah, well, I have family, so my if I don't if I don't work, I spend time with my kids. They like everything, so it's um. And that keeps you in shape as well, running after your kids. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, my kids keep me busy. So you know, that's that's what's important for me is um, when I'm not doing this, I spend time with them. Do you have any specific hobbies that you like? I like to work out or take long jogs and things like that. But I, I guess the thing I most enjoy is is playing competitive bin ball, which
which I, I've loved all my life. I used to collect old video games like Coinops full size 1981-1982 video games and I have a collection of those as well but for the last 20 years I've mostly been getting into pinball especially new machines because they, they, they make new machines still nowadays and I, I buy new machines straight from the factory and bring them into my house and learn the rules and then I play competitive pinball and it's great. Now in your book you mention because I want to I want to try and give people some guidance now you mentioned this thing and I'm really glad you did about like latch on to the new things you talk about NFTs you talk about Bitcoin you talk about currencies and you also mention the good and the bad of it and I think that's what's great about the book you talk about the good but also the warning signs but like for someone who's new what are sort of the trends that you see coming that like let's say I'm starting now and I'm looking for this new thing that I should latch on to have you got any sort of ideas or guidance for me you know what should I look at is it Bitcoin you know hacking web 3 what, what sort of whether where Where's the world going? I'm a strong believer in programmable money. We've just scratched the surface of what's doable with programmable money. When you look at the original Bitcoin blockchain, the 2009 white paper and the innovation in itself, that is a major, major innovation. The way you can tell that an innovation is a major innovation is that you explain to someone else what the innovation is and they go, huh? Is that it? Because that's exactly what the blockchain is. It's just a ledger of transaction which is forever unchangeable and forever public. That's it. And it seems so obvious, yet nobody invented it before Mr. Satoshi Nakamoto did in 2009. And, and the things it enables um, so far have been pretty basic. We've, the big things we've seen so far has been currencies and collectibles, which are interesting, but there's so much more that could be done with it. And I, of course, I'm fully aware of, of the downsides because I see a lot of criminal use of cryptocurrencies. And of course, everybody knows about the energy consumption problems of many of the blockchain systems. But I do believe that we will find interesting uses for these technologies, especially when you think about automation, machine-to-machine -machine transactions. When a server needs resources from another server, let's say storage or computing power, when it's using APIs to get resources from someone else and it's a transaction which involves money, why would these machines trade in dollars? or pounds or euros. It makes no sense. Of course, they're going to trade with programmable currencies. And there's tons of security work to be done about programmable currencies and smart contracts and, and all of that. Um, and the, again, a narrow field of expertise. If you want to be successful in this field, look into how to secure smart contracts and how to build programmable money systems. There will be tons of companies interested in that expertise in the very near future. And one of the examples I give in the book, which I really think will become a thing, is um, the fact that when, I, when my book came out, a lot of people bought the ebook or the audiobook. And when people buy the physical book, they quite often, you know, want me to sign it if they see me in a conference. They bring the book and I'll, of course, I'm more than happy to sign the book for them. In fact, I've been sending a lot of people signed punch cards in the mail if they can't get the signed book so they can use it as a bookmark. But how do you sign an ebook or how do you sign an audiobook? You can't. Uh, and I think someone's going to solve that problem. Uh, there's going to be some kind of an NFT or something like that which proves that, you know, I've met this person and he signed virtually this specific copy of this book. And later on, you could even sell the book and, and the, the signature would carry on with it. It would become more valuable because it's signed. And when you take this one step further, it could be any kind of artist. Let's say a famous band on stage could sign a live copy of the song they're playing to the audience right now and everybody in the audience would get a signed copy and they could resell it later and the band would get a cut of the resales. These are the kinds of things which we don't have yet but they're all coming from the same innovation of the blockchain. Something like this will happen and someone needs to build it and someone needs to secure it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think with, with the knowledge that you've got and you've got your, like, your finger on the pulse of what's happening, it's great to hear what's coming, what are the big waves. And I mean, based on the title of the book, it sounds like IOTs is a huge wave from a security point of view to, to look into. Blockchain is, is a big one. Uh, just correct me if I'm wrong, but is, are those two like two great areas and are there any other areas that you think are gonna like change the world or like have a huge impact in the coming years so that someone new can like ride that wave if you like? Well, there's one more and it's probably going to be the biggest which is machine learning it's quite scary when you look at how quickly it's advancing right now and how it will change the workforce and this is also something important to think about for for uh, people who are planning their careers we're going to lose a lot of jobs which used to belong to people to machines which is which is nothing new like when we invented artificial power 
two, three hundred years ago, steam engines and then the electrical engine. That also made a lot of people unemployed, and people protested against that as well. And 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 people didn't they didn't like the idea that machine could do the work belonging to humans. But of course, in the end, I think we all agree that you know the works that steam engines and and, and electrical engines could take away from humans were probably better handled by machines than humans. Humans could do more productive things. And I think, well, I guess I hope that the same thing will happen with the next revolution, where it's not artificial power, but artificial intelligence replacing some of the human jobs. Do you look at how good computers are already in art and in text? In 10 years, many of the jobs which human designers and writers were doing will be replaced by, by computers. So it's going to be painful and it's going to be a hard thing for us to accept that computers can be more creative than humans in some of the jobs that we used to think only belong to humans. And in the end, this will apply to coding. Development will eventually, I believe, will be done by computers, but I think it's going to take quite a while. So the, the current generation probably still has to write their own programs, but eventually programs will write all programs. That's amazing. I mean, so AI, blockchain, IoT. I think you've always, you mentioned in your book, I, I can't remember if I watched it on a video, if it's in your book, that networks will disappear and there'll be limitless computing for free and that'll change everything, right? Yep, that's, that's, the, that's the end game. That up there, that's, that's the end game. It's been part of my job to try to forecast where the enemy is going and what's going to happen in the upcoming years. And it's really hard. Typically, you get it wrong. What's easy is to forecast the far future. Like, where is computing going in decades? Because then you only have to look at history. And the fact is, in the 1990s, the the computers, the fastest computers on the planet were slower than the phones we have in our pockets today, which is just insane. Like, the fastest gray supercomputers from the end of 1990s, which were size of a small lorry or van, which were water-cooled and had their own power generator, they had less computing power than your iPhone or your Android phone right now. And the the phone runs on a battery. It's, It's insane how much faster and cheaper everything has become. And this will continue, which means eventually it will lead us to limitless computing for free. So we will all have access to unlimited computing. You could imagine that you would be given the biggest possible AWS cluster with unlimited storage, unlimited memory, unlimited CPU power, unlimited bandwidth for a cent a month or something like that. that that's where we're headed. It, of course, it's going to take a while, but that's the direction. You don't take this literally. It's not going to be literally limitless and limit, literally free, but very close to limitless and very close to free eventually. And that's a really positive idea. We've spoken a lot about bad things which are happening and will happen. This is a good thing because it changes the the, the mindset of us creators, us coders, designers, it poses the question, what would you build if there would be no limits? And that's a really powerful thought. That's amazing. I mean, to think about that a bit. But I mean, it's so true. You can see that, you know, the, the way the world's moving. I mean, like you said, years ago, the power in a smartphone is so much greater than, you know, what we had 20 years ago, or whatever. It's it's unbelievable. So you're giving us some big picture, you know, areas to look at, like blockchain, uh, cloud, co- you know, the, the way the cloud is, you know, going to be so cheap, unlimited power, that kind of stuff. But do you have like any practical things that we can look at doing? Well, one thing that I've been doing all my life, which I would like to recommend to everybody is that don't waste your commuting time or downtime I'm listening to music. And I know this sounds weird because I love music myself. Um, What I'm trying to say is that for years and years, I've been listening to podcasts and conference talks and even things like TED Talks whenever I'm sitting in the bus or driving a car or flying on a plane. I do it for two reasons. Reason number one, I want to learn. I want to learn not just about my own field of expertise, but about the world, about things that I'm not normally thinking about. And second of all, uh, whenever I'm listening to anything, I'm listening to to spoken English because I'm not an English speaker. I speak Finnish. Finnish is my home language, but I need to use English professionally. So one great way to keep up your language skills is to listen to the language you need to speak. As much as you can, teach yourself during those down times, during the times when you can't be reading textbooks or coding away, listen to podcasts, which will teach you about the topics you need to learn. Do you have any more practical tips, like perhaps reading books or like audio books, uh, you know, the way to do that? Any sort of, you know, after all these years of experience that you've got, things that have really helped you take sort of your knowledge or your experience to another level? Well, it's always a great idea to find a mentor. 
find someone who can lead you to where you want to go. It could be a relative. It could be someone working in your company. It could be someone you admire. And the way you get a mentor is you go and ask. You simply walk up to them and you ask, "Would you? could you help me? I, I need your help. I think you could help me. And then the way mentoring works is that you just meet every now and then and you tell what you're doing and you ask for guidance. And you can have multiple mentors at the same time. Find people who have done what you want to do and ask for help. People like to help. I help anyone who comes to me asking for help. Miko, so a lot of the people watching might be younger than us. They might call us boomers. You know, we might have grown up on the command line, like you must use the command line. Or, you know, these days a lot of interfaces are graphical. Uh, but let's let, let's make it more practical. Is it worth learning the command line, like becoming good at Linux? Are there any other practical skills that you'd recommend? Well, I, I live on the command line always, regardless if it's Windows or, or Mac or Linux. I'm on the command line. It's so much faster. You control the system so much better. It's so much easier to automate things when you run everything from the command line. If you're not familiar with the command line, learn the command line. And I know many people use Linux from the command line, but when they go, go into Windows, they don't. You can do everything in Windows that you can do in Linux from the command line. And it's going to be exactly as productive. You might change the shell or you might change the configuration, but learn command line. It will save you unlimited hours in your day. Now that, that, that gets me to another interesting topic. You're based in which country? I'm based in Finland. And there's a very famous person who's from that country as well, right? You might be referring to Linus Torvalds, right? When I was studying at the Helsinki University, he was studying there at the same time. He used to be bicycling by our office every morning on his way to university. I, I know Linus or, or, or Linus. I haven't actually met him in the real world for maybe six years now. He's living in Oregon nowadays. But he is the most important Finnish person who has ever lived because he really has changed the world. This operating system that he started as a student is now the number one operating system in the world. And it's not running only on Earth. It's actually running on Mars at this very time which is insane. Let me ask you a dumb question. Is it Linux or is it Linux? Oh, here in Finland, it's Linux. And uh, Linus Torvalds himself says Linux. I'm glad you said that because that's what I call it. But it's it's funny how people get you know so hung up about that. But it's amazing how Linux has sort of, years ago, I remember the wars between Windows and Linux and how Windows was going to kill Linux. But now we have WSL running on Windows. Linux has really taken over, hasn't it? Oh, yes, it has. Um, I mean, smartphones, Android is 80% or 75% of the world smartphones and that's Linux and all supercomputers run Linux Google search runs on Linux it's 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 everywhere it's um, remarkable but yet people somehow miss it because their computer might still be running Windows and that's all they think about they of course will ignore the fact that Facebook where they go with their Windows computer is running on Linux because they don't see that so it is a massive success story and and of course Microsoft itself um, not just inside Windows but you know many of their development environments such as GitHub is running on Linux itself so what do you use do you use Linux Mac OS or Windows as your desktop or I computer use all of them use, I all, use of them? all of them I think now I'm spending most of my time with Windows but it has really changed over the years. One thing I always like to do is run the same systems that our clients and customers run. So I understand the environments they're working in. I understand yep. their problems. That's probably the main reason why I'm running so much Windows nowadays. I've read in your book and I've heard you say this. I think something along the lines that it doesn't make sense for normal users to use a Windows computer or Mac or something. They should rather be using like a, a smartphone device because smartphones are, I think you said, uh, are better for internet banking because they're more secure. So could you just talk around that and, and hopefully I've said kind of right yeah yeah the point i've been trying to make is that if you compare the security of a device like this this is an ipad it's very similar to functionality to a macbook really it's you know very few differences except that this is a closed environment this you can't just have an sdk installed and start coding and running code on this if you want to develop and and make programs which you can then run on your own device and give to your friends so they can run them on their own device then you have to sign up for Apple development program and submit your programs to Apple in California, which is exactly the same model you have on your PlayStation. A PlayStation or an Xbox is a computer as well, but you can't program them by yourself. And these are very, very restrictive environments, but it's also very, very secure. Funnily enough, you never hear about malware or viruses or hack incidents on Xboxes. An Xbox runs Windows. You, you would think there would be problems just like every other Windows, but you don't because it's a closed environment. So 
What does it mean in practice? It means that if you're doing something really important, something which needs ultra high security, let's say you're buying a house and you have to send the down payment, don't send the down payment from your Windows computer. Send it from your iPad. It's so much less likely that there's a piece of banking Trojan malware running on here as opposed to your Windows or MacBook computer. So these things, many people think they're like, you know, small computers or toy computers. They're actually more secure than real computers. That's really interesting. So uh, I, I think the term you use, if I remember right, is you said the problem with Macs and Windows is you could write an application and you could give it to me and I could run that application. Whereas with these kind of devices, it's much more difficult to do that, right? That's that's exactly the reason why they are more secure. And that's, that's a trade-off. I mean, we're giving away rights. You don't have the right to program a computer you own, which sounds insane, but that's exactly what these closed environments are. And that's a trade-off. We, we give away rights, but we get better security. And it is one of the biggest security improvements we've seen in the last 15 years. These closed environments, which everybody runs in our phones and tablets, those are much more secure because they are closed. So would you say for companies, it makes sense to give like receptionists and I don't know, people who don't need the kind of power that you would need as a developer, rather give them iPads or Android devices or something that's much more limited. Or, or, or Chromebooks. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of computers give away Chromebooks nowadays for people who are not doing development or who, do, who don't need that level of privileges. And that's a great idea. It's so much easier and cheaper to maintain a network of iPads or network of Chromebooks than a network of Windows devices. That's such an interesting, you know, I, I don't know if, is, is that a paradigm shift that you kind of like advocating? Because I haven't heard someone say that before. Yes, it is. And I think it's going to happen. And I think one of the things fueling it right now are all these ransomware incidents. Tons of big companies get hit with ransomware. It spreads everywhere because everybody's running Windows laptops. And if there's a domain takeover, they can just send programs to every single desktop and run it and encrypt everything and steal all the files. When they recover, I'm seeing a lot of companies replace Windows laptops with things like Chromebooks. Because why give these really powerful tools, dangerous tools, to users who don't need that kind of a power? And I have to make it clear here, I do understand that more technical people, designers, developers, they need the more powerful tools, even though they are more dangerous. But in that case, you don't have an option. You have to be able to run code that you write if you're, if you're developing systems yourself. I think, I mean, it's crazy. We're giving users a device like a Windows computer or a Mac or whatever, and then they log on with admin privileges, especially like at home. It's, it's, it, it seems like mad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm happy to see that many companies are taking away admin rights at the very least, but it makes, you, makes me wonder if they could take away more if the users don't really need that. And like uh, my friend Sami Laiho has said multiple times, admin rights are not human rights. Many people feel really strongly about this in corporate environment when someone takes away the admin privileges, like, like somehow they would... They have earned it, and it's my right to have admin privileges. It's not your right. You don't really need it. For the record, for the corporate Windows laptop that I have here at the office, I don't have admin rights on that. I mean, there's a difference between, say, a lot of the people watching this and the average user out there. Um, a lot Non-technical people don't understand, you know, the power they've been given, and someone can, you know, fool them into doing something like clicking on a link or something and, you know, running malware. Yep, and that, that's a huge burden of responsibility we're putting on the shoulders of users who have no way of handling that burden. And, and that's the wrong thing to do. And one thing I really don't like is that whenever there's a big data breach or data leak or whatever, it's the end user who gets the blame. Stupid user clicked on a link. Stupid user opened up an attack. Stupid user fell for a phishing scam. Well, you know what? It's not stupid users. It's stupid systems. And if there's a link that the user must never click on, well, that link shouldn't be on his desktop to begin with. Like the responsibility should be taken away from the users who can't handle the responsibility and we need to put the responsibility to where it belongs. And it belongs to experts, security people, operating system manufacturers and telcos and operators. That's where we should put the responsibility. I love that. I think that's such great advice is like the responsibility shouldn't be on the user because you've mentioned this before, you know, you can change systems, you can patch systems in your book. I think you mentioned it as well. But, you you know, how do you patch a human? There's, there's no patch for this. The only patch we have is education and that almost always fails. That's brilliant. I think that's fantastic advice for, you know, for companies to to think about. I've, I haven't heard someone talk about that before. So it's fantastic that you're mentioning this. Now, I want to talk about something else, which I believe 
perhaps keeps you up at night. It's not just IoT devices. It's also SCADA and ICS devices. And I mean, there's been a lot of instances in, in recent times where, you know, power plants have been taken down and stuff. And I believe your company has a program similar to Shodan. And there's some funny examples in the book. And I love the stories in the book where you phone some person and say, you know, I've got access to your SCADA system. So could you just talk briefly about SCADA, ICS, and why it makes you worry? The biggest difference between the computers in our plants and computers in our office is that the computers in our plants, they have a really, really long life cycle. And, and the way they've traditionally been secured is that you simply keep, keep them offline. Like there's no risk if this factory isn't online. It's getting harder and harder to keep things offline. And, and the main reason why it's hard to keep things offline is the TCP IP routing protocol, which runs the whole internet. It, it's been designed to get things online. If it can't connect from one point to another point, it tries to find a way around it. It tries to reroute automatically, which means if there's any way between point A and point B, no matter how long and how convoluted, TCP IP will find it. The end result of this is that when factories are, are, are operated with computers and things change, like networks are reconfigured or companies are bought and merged, the networks are connected, they end up with indirect connectivities which are hard to see and TCP IP will find them. And the end result is that we have these factories with age-old ICS or OT computers exposed to public internet. And we find these. We, we scan the internet. We find these regularly. And whenever we tell these factories that we can see your control interface, they are horrified. Or they don't believe us. They simply refuse to believe that something so critical would be exposed online. I've, I've had these phone calls that, hey, you know, your, your control interface is online. And they're, no, 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 no. It's not online. We can only see it internally. I said, no, I'm actually here in Helsinki, Finland. I can see it. They're like, no, you can't. Well, I said, I can. I can start clicking on these buttons in your interface to change settings in your factory. Please don't click on the buttons. And the end result, when we like look at the root cause, why did it, did it end up online, is always that you know they reconfigured something over the years and then no, without anybody realizing, the system got exposed. And so is it a big worry for you because these systems are getting online? And I think that you used the example in Ukraine. I mean, there's quite a few examples out there. It's getting more so where you know electricity gets turned off, stuff like that, right? Yep, it is worrying because our society our infrastructure runs on computers nowadays. As I said earlier, you know, we, we, we used to think we we're securing computers. Nowadays, we're securing the whole society. Electricity and water distribution, food processing, plants, planes, trains, automobiles, it's, everything is being run by computers. And this matters in times of peace, but it matters even more during times of crisis and during times of war. And we've seen examples of this in Ukraine as well. Russia has successfully twice cut power in Ukraine during the war once they tried and failed because the Ukrainians were able to defend their electricity grid. And it's the kind of things that would have been science fiction just 15 years ago, but this is real. Cyber war is happening and it's very real right now. One of the things that it feels like is like the world is so pessimistic. It, it, like talking about this stuff can like be really depressing at times. Are you depressed for the future? Are you optimistic that, you know, there will be good out of all of this? Well, I'm sort of both, but I try to be an optimist. <laughs> I, 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 I do believe that the future of limitless computing is in the future. The things that get me down are things like the fact that we killed privacy. And, and machine learning will take away many of the jobs we right now have and love. So it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag, but I, I, I want to be an optimist. And I picked this up from a polar explorer, a Norwegian guy I met a couple of years ago, an old guy in his, in his 70s who had been spending his life skiing through the North Pole and through the South Pole. And every year he goes through Greenland, as, as you do. And we spoke about global warming. And he told me how he has seen with his own eyes how every year the ice is thinner and the, 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 the snow goes further away. So I asked him about how, how does he feel about global warming, and he told me that he's an optimist. And I was really surprised. Like, how, how the hell? How can you be an optimist when you've seen how bad it is? And he told me that he believes it's too late to be a pessimist. And that really stuck with me. And I, 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 that's, that's the mindset I want to have myself. I want to be an optimist. It's too late to be a pessimist. 
honest. Yeah, so the, the world has changed. We are connecting our homes. We are connecting our factories. We're connecting trains, planes, everything to the internet, which gives us a lot of advantages, but comes with a lot of risks. So you you say it's too late to change that now. You've just got to be optimist, be an optimist to like make the best of it, right? Internet is the best thing and the worst thing which has happened during our lifetime. Mika, you've told me and everyone who's watching that we're liars. Why are we liars? We're liars because every time we're asked... Have you read the terms and agreements? We say yes. And we never read the terms and agreements. We, we just click on the box to make it go away. And we actually tested this. We had a test. We set up a Wi-Fi in downtown London where we had a free Wi-Fi hotspot. All you had to do was to accept our terms and agreements. And those terms <laughs> and agreements included that your firstborn child will be taken away by our company. And everybody accepted it. No one reads this. And that's the biggest lie we do. That's so hilarious. I mean, and uh, have you changed your behavior since you, you, you've pointed out that everyone's a liar or you know do you, i don't do you... read the terms and agreements either no <laughs> one reads the terms and agreements so you were in your in your terms and conditions you were going to get a whole bunch of kids did you did you take people up on that and you've got a lot of children now at the company well i was pushing for it i i, I told our people <laughs> we really should go and pick a couple of kids you know just for shit and giggles they told me no so we didn't pick up any kids even though we had the right to that's hilarious. There's a really funny story in your book about, is it the first PC virus and your interesting trip to Pakistan? Oh, yeah. I, uh, I remember when we were looking at the anniversary of the first PC virus, we had a meeting here at the office and, and our marketing people wanted to do something around it. And all the ideas they had were really boring. And I floated this idea that, you know, I've analyzed this virus, which is from 1986. And I remember that there's an address inside the virus. Why don't I go to the address and try to find the people who wrote the virus back then in 1986? Stupid idea, but we did it. And I did end up finding the people who wrote the very first PC virus in 1986. They are in Lahore, Pakistan. That's a great story. So I don't want to take too much away from the book. You, you should read the book. It's got a lot of very interesting and funny stories. And I, Mika, I think that's something you've said you've tried to do. You've tried to mix stories plus techie content. That's right. And I, I was actually listening um, the audio version of my own book. I, I don't read the audio version myself. It's written by an actor called Rich Miller. And I just I was listening to it uh, to just get the idea how he reads it. And he's a great reader. But I found myself I was driving around in the Netherlands. I found myself like forgetting everything else and just listening to the stories, my own stories, which is funny. But when someone else reads your own stories, it's, it's like it's a different story. We humans like to listen to stories. I believe that's how we learn. And that's why it's important to share what we've learned ourselves as stories, because people tell those stories further on. And that's how knowledge spreads. That's brilliant. And I really want to thank you for, you know, for sharing your stories and sharing your knowledge and wisdom with all of us, especially people who are perhaps younger or who are trying to get into the field. And do you have any closing thoughts, especially for the younger generation? Because they might be saying, well, you old people, you boomers gave us this world and, you know, you, you, the environment is struggling or the suffering. The, um, the Internet's full of risks. Any closing thoughts for the next generation? You're very lucky to be alive right now. You're lucky to be alive. You're lucky to be born in the middle of the biggest technological revolution the mankind has ever seen. You will forever be remembered as the first generation in mankind's history who lives their lives online. I'm representing the last generation which was living offline. So the world is changing right now. Mankind has been on this planet for 100,000 years offline. We're going online right now and we will be online forever. And you're the first ones doing it. It's, it's never been more exciting to work in technology. That's brilliant. Mika, I want to thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me.